Gresham College presents the regulation of long-term savings. Are regulators about to make a mistake with major impact on the economy, consumers and markets? By Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Thank you, Barbara. That uh, reminds me, in fact, of many years ago, um, I was asked by a, a Japanese fund manager to um, explain, I think it must have been around the time of the 1970 election, to explain the UK election process. And English is, is very difficult for Japanese people, as Japanese is very difficult for English people. But they're very polite. So I had a, an hour conversation where I was speaking away, and on the other side of the phone I heard, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. And then right at the end he said, hmm, what does vote mean? <laughs> Welcome to this lecture. We've talked a lot in this lecture series about banks, their behavior, and their regulation. We've talked about the inadequate emphasis in financial theory on the behavior of market participants, and in particular, the impact of hurling. We've talked about the need for diversity in behavior in order for financial markets to function correctly. Liquidity needs buyers and sellers. It needs a diversity of strategies and opinions. And we've spoken about the pressures for less diversity in the behavior of banks and markets. Some of these pressures are technological, like the information revolution, the collapse of information costs. And being technological, they're probably immovable. Some of these pressures, though, are regulatory and therefore avoidable. The consequences of this homogenization of banking, of a smaller number of big banks, with similar processes and behavior, we've talked about this. The consequences of this in markets and financial systems is that they're getting bigger, but perhaps thinner. Larger in turnover and capitalization, but more volatile. And this is important. Volatile markets are not just a nuisance, but often lead to a costly misallocation of savings and investment, as the dot-com saga showed us recently. Volatile markets also breed fatter margins for bankers and traders, which may be good for the London property market uh, and will be recorded as GDP growth in the statistics but ultimately doesn't really add economic welfare. I say this as a banker and trader myself. Throughout these lectures, we found that there are many instances of the unintended consequences of regulation, where the outcome is the opposite to the intention. The path to financial hell is paved with good intentions. Modern-day bank risk management creates risks. Now, some will conclude that we should have less regulation as a result of this. And I think there is often, though not always, some sense to that. However, my principal contention tonight is that these unintended consequences emphasize the importance of getting regulation right. And the process of doing that is through considerate, open, 
constructive critique. Regulators are often at the sharp end of these lectures, but I don't envy their task, and I compliment their commitment to it. That said, I believe the unintended consequences of regulation in the pension and insurance markets, the focus of tonight's lecture, are potentially very dangerous for pensioners and the economy. Now, before I outline these beliefs, I think it's important in this series to set the scene with another perspective. Dr. Peter Warburton has been thinking about these issues and financial issues for uh, close to 20 odd years now, I think, Peter, in both academia and in the city. He's an independent financial analyst and thinker and one of the uh, most insightful thinkers at the moment uh, on some of these issues. Peter, could you come up and share some of your perspectives on these topics? Thank you for that um, extremely generous introduction, which I, I certainly don't deserve. Um, but what I want to give is really a very personal um, view uh, of, um, if you like, the issues surrounding the safeguarding of uh, long-term capital in the UK. And um, what I want to do is to really set the scene, first of all, by talking about um, really what's happened in the last 10 years um, in terms of UK long-term savings, and then to ask um, three questions um, in relation to its regulation. Um, well, the, the main guardians, obviously, of long-term savings in the UK are the uh, life assurance and pension funds. Um, my central thesis would be that they are, at this point, suffering the consequences of a persistent built-in bias to equity investments. Um, I can't remember whether it's the latest estimate of the UK pensions shortfall, this is occupational pension shortfall, but £120 billion seems to sort of stick in my memory as being uh, the kind of figure which is commonly quoted. And even the year of rising equity prices um, has not dented um, this shortfall. But the UK is extraordinary in its commitment to um, equity allocation. In 1990, 66% of UK institutional funds were held as equities. The next highest allocation in that year was Australia at 39%, Sweden 28%, and United States 24%. Now, by 1998, and obviously a, a, a strong run in equities by and large, other countries had narrowed the gap. But uh, the UK was still well out in front with a 65% allocation. The US had doubled to 50%, and Australia and Sweden were close behind. Now, between 1990 and 1998, this equity bias served the UK very well. Fund assets grew from 115% of national income at the end of 1990 to 214% um, eight years later. By the end of 1999, the financial assets of the UK long-term funds had reached um, £1.7 trillion, you know, £1,700 billion. And just to stop at that point and think, what was the asset allocation? Well, it was 69% in equities, 44% of which was UK equities, 
17% um, overseas, 8% in mutual funds, collective investment vehicles, and 23% in bonds. Very heavy equity allocation. So cash and other assets make up the loose change. Pension funds in particular continued, this is pension funds as opposed to life assurance funds, um, continued to back the equity market despite the extreme overvaluation that had developed, that is in relation to um, sort of physical assets, if you like, the, the notion of Q, the, 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 the able to replace um, the assets on which the um, you know, companies earn their profits, replace them by buying the, the underlying assets rather than buying the company, which is an embodiment of the assets. So on those kind of valuations, uh, equities were extremely keenly priced. But despite this, and uh, despite the fact that funds could have locked in a substantial po portion of their future um, cash requirements, which to match the, the, the long-term liabilities that pensions represent, despite the fact that they, they could have done this and had a, a much easier life um, for many years, um, they failed to do so. I think one of the central issues, and really perhaps where financial regulation ought to have reached but somehow didn't, was um, how, uh, how this could have been sustained. Now, there's a, a, a very um, long-standing uh, commentator on, the, on this issue, um, Andrew Smithers, whom many of you will know. And his explanation, which I, I think I would accept, is that the failure of UK pension funds to rebalance their portfolios stems considerably from a misuse of what's called a dividend discount model by pensions consultants. Um, it was just an easy piece of arithmetic to add the dividend yield on shares, typically about 3 or 4%, to the assumed growth of uh, dividends in line with the economy, um, again, which would be 2 or 3%, and that would give you, you know, 6 or 7%. So every year, ex your expectation was that equities would return 6 or 7%, and perhaps a bit more. The trouble with this, as long-term studies have now revealed, is that actually, in real terms, dividends barely grow at all. Indeed, they, they grow typically between 2 and 4% a year less than the growth of the economy. And so uh, what this means is that this flawed assumption um, introduced an equity bias, which was then um, sort of communicated via the consultants to the whole industry. And th the key insight really is that um, there is a, 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 what's called a mean reverting nature to equity returns. And even over the very long term, the current value of the stock market uh, does affect the return. So if it's overvalued to start with, it, it will deplete the returns uh, even in the medium term. So the result was that long-term funds suffered head-on when the equity market went into reverse in the early part of 2000. By the end of 2002, despite the addition of over £120 billion of net inflows in those three years, insurance corporations and pension funds their assets had dwindled from 1.7 trillion to 1.4, so allowing for the additional cash inflows and an effective loss of about 25%. So let's just ask the question, how did their asset allocation change over these three years of a bear market in equities? Well, the 69% in equities went down to 53 and the, and, and the in bonds, the 23% went up to 35. So um, they did rebalance um, into bonds. But what's interesting is that that shift out of UK equities 
went only marginally into gilts, you know, sort of default risk-free um, bonds. 3% went into overseas bonds, but 7% went into UK corporate bonds, which I'll return to that point. So that's the sort of background. What I, the, the three questions I very briefly want to address are, first of all, um, is faulty UK regulation to blame for um, poor pensions performance? Secondly, what are the most important risks facing long-term savings today? And thirdly, will proposed changes to financial regulation offer better protection to long-term savings uh, in the future? So firstly, um, can we blame um, regulation um, for poor pensions performance? And I think they're probably only marginally so. I think while there have been a number of, of damaging tax and regulatory influences on pension funds over the years, they don't absolve the funds from their extraordinary commitment to domestic equities. Um, their, this asset allocation was not motivated in any obvious way by financial regulation. Indeed, the, the minimum funding requirement embodied in the Pensions Act of 1995, post-Maxwell, actually tilted asset allocations in favour of index-linked bonds, uh, government bonds, and away from equities. But it's certainly um, rather easier to argue that faulty regulation has dissuaded employers from continuing to provide defined benefit schemes and individuals from making adequate private provision. Perhaps more significant, in fact, rather than regulation, was the tax changes, Nigel Lawson's tax on pension fund surpluses in excess of 5% of liabilities um, paved the way for extended employer contribution holidays. Uh, so companies, because their funds were so heavily in surplus in the equity boom years, um, then were, were no longer paying in regularly to their pension funds. Um, had they been uh, encouraged and allowed to accumulate larger surpluses, then clearly this would have served as a buffer and we wouldn't be in the shortfall position um, that we currently are. Uh, secondly, obviously the, the Gordon Brown's withdrawal of the tax rebate on dividend income from pension funds in 1987 has also aggravated the situation, taking about £5 billion a year out of the funds. So the first question, is faulty regulation to blame for the pension shortfall situation now, um, I would say not particularly so. Tax to some extent, but probably regulation has been a, a minor influence. What are the most important risks facing long-term savings today? Well, I, I'd want to mention two distinct types of risks. Um, one is the imposition of um, really inappropriate regulation in relation to pension products, um, such that funds bearing greater costs take bigger risks. The second is that pension funds overestimate the health of the private sector credit system and the strength of corporate balance sheets. And as I alluded to earlier, the funds have already embarked on a sizable shift from corporate equities into corporate bonds. Now the essence of this switch is from what I would say is continuous risk if you hold equities, you could always be hit by bad news. You know, there's a whole stream of, of announcements every day um, for resource companies about their oil fields and discoveries, for agricultural companies about harvests and so on. So holding equities, you're exposed to a constant stream of, of, of news, some of which will be negative and some positive. But in corporate bonds, you're, you basically have one, a discrete risk. There's the risk 
that there's an adverse event that so damages the company that it imperils its ability to redeem its fixed interest liabilities at par. So you're swapping a continuous risk really for a discrete or um, event risk. So arguably pension funds have not altered their risk profiles um, as much as it might appear. The absorption of corporate risk in debt form may even tempt them to select companies uh, on a yield basis which actually have weaker balance sheets than those companies they would have considered to buy equities from um, if that had been their, their, their allocation. So specifically, I would say the funds are, are still vulnerable to an over-leveraging, uh, over i.e. Uh, too much debt on the balance sheet in the corporate sector in a low inflation climate. Um, <clears throat> the loss of reliability in corporate reporting and a loss of integrity in corporate management. Well, finally, the third question I wanted to pose was, will proposed changes to financial regulation offer better protection to long-term savings in the UK? Well, we can think of UK pensions regulation as having moved through three stages. First of all, from prudential regulation of pension companies, then to the regulation of business conduct, and now um, the emphasis seems to be on the regulation of the pensions product and trying to ensure um, some sort of quality standard in the product. The Queen's speech um, <coughs> last year proposed a pensions bill to encourage firms to provide good quality pensions and employees to save more effectively for their retirement. Uh, the main thrusts of the initiatives from the FSA and indeed the international initiatives such as the European Single Market and the Basel Accord are really on consumer protection and standardization. This emphasis on the product rather than the provider or distributor of the product seems destined to raise costs in return for no obvious benefits in my view. I'm quoting uh, David Simpson um, who was a an academic and long-standing advisor to Standard Life, um, writing in, e in Economic Affairs magazine last September. And he says, prescriptive regulation as embodied in the Acts of 86 and 99 has failed to protect consumers from fraud, incompetence and market misconduct. And it will continue to fail no matter how many consultation papers are issued. The pensions industry, um, this is his his view, but one I would certainly consider, the pensions industry should be withdrawn from the supervision of the FSA. All that this organization and its predecessors have done is to add costs, inevitably passed on to consumers, stifle, inflate, stifle innovation and create an oligopoly of suppliers, that is a, a concentration of too many assets held in too few hands. So I think the, the general thrust of what, of what I uh, have to say is that I don't think we're in the, going in the right direction in terms of pension regulation. Um, <clears throat> I think the pension industry's reputation can be restored most effectively by promoting competition between providers um, and that really perhaps the form of regulation most appropriate is some kind of antitrust regime policed by a competition authority or indeed the Office of Fair Trading and that um, in this way to encourage standards to rise to foster better conduct in the pensions industry and the emergence of strong competitors vying to offer the best service to customers. Those offering a better service could charge higher fees. 
But this is only part of the story. In the absence of a resurgence of generalized price inflation, excessive corporate indebtedness, compounded by the reminders of accounting pension fund deficits under the accounting regime, FRS 17, will undermine pension fund performance for many years to come. Only government and super-government bonds offer protection against default and, in, and inflation. Um, and so far, UK pension funds have been loath to switch into these default uh, risk bonds or into index-linked uh, inflation-protected bonds. After Enron and Parmalat, uh, the Italian dairy companies, um, it is clear that company size can't be taken as a guarantee of the creditworthiness of a corporate bond. Ford, motor company with its $250 billion of debt, had a near-death experience in September 2002. So pension funds, I think, remain likely victims of unseen risk transfers in the debt and derivative markets. Thank you. Thanks very much, Peter. I want to pick up on some of those themes by looking at three, I think, very important trends in the field of, of long-term savings. The first is the shift from defined benefit pension plans to uh, defined contribution plans. And I apologize for the terminology, but there's just no way you can set up pensions. Defined benefit the benefit pension plans, if you can remember those, are fading into the memory for most people. They're those plans where the company defines your benefit. It may be boring, but it is actually fairly sensible. Defined benefit plans are those where the benefit is defined at the beginning of your employment. Often it's some proportion of your final salary, some fraction of your final salary. A defined contribution plan is one where the contribution you make into your pension plan is what's defined. The payout isn't, and that will depend on the investment performance of your contributions. Now this shift is a very important one. It sounds a bit academic, but it's a very important shift. It started some time ago, but defined benefit pension plans, the old type of pension plans, were dealt the knockout blow, I would say, by the now infamous FRS 17. Sounds like a vaccine, but it's not. FRS 17 is a form of regulation which reflects the sensible wish of regulators to put the net financial obligations of a company's pension fund to disclose it and onto its balance sheet. This regulation follows pretty directly from the dominant school of thought in financial regulation that says a risk disclosed is a risk better managed, which sounds very sensible, but is not always so. Now, many companies concluded that once this exposure they had was disclosed, it was better not to have this risk at all, especially as the frequent reporting and recording of the financial position of the pension fund would add to the pro-cyclicality of their underlying earnings in most cases. They would be preparing to make more money than they were when the markets were prospering and less money than they were when the markets were not. And consequently, they dropped their defined benefit pension plans like a hot potato and chose a defined benefit contribution plans instead. Now, of course, the risk the company was running has not suddenly disappeared. 
that risk has, to some extent, shifted to the employee. And employees will augment those risks further. Let me explain. Your average company is less liquidity constrained than your average employee, than you and I. If you're a young employee with many years ahead of you before you retire, your natural expectation is that your income is going to rise over time. And as a result, if you want to borrow, you want to borrow from your future income, not your small or past incomes. But your average employee cannot go into a bank and say, can I borrow next year's salary, please? No, the bank, if it does so, will insist upon a fairly hefty piece of collateral for that loan, like a, a, a stake in your home. That's because they're liquidity constrained. Now, the one way a liquidity constrained person can borrow from the future is borrowing from your pension. And the way they do that is by trying to achieve the same pension objectives by choosing a lower contribution but buying riskier assets. Now, this is an important conclusion because it means the excessive equity holdings of the average pensioner in the UK is not to do, is not driven by poor or inadequate advice, although that may well be there as well, but the individual choice of liquidity constrained people. Giving people the opportunity to make informed choices sounds like apple pie and ice cream. How can you argue against that? But this choice, not through chance, not through mis-selling, but inevitably will be a riskier choice. Now, it appears that the government and our regulators don't appreciate this in finance, although they do appreciate it when it comes to the national lottery. Why on earth do people play a bad gamble? Liquidity-constrained people will play a bad gamble in the hope that they will win and change their lives. The authorities believe they're making the financial system safer through FRS 17 and through more financial education. But they're not. Of course, who ultimately carries the risk of the financial system? The risk for the next generation of pensioners, and should I add voters, are poorer than they hoped, than they expected. It's the taxpayer. Private defined contribution pension schemes reduces the liability of companies and taxpayers on paper but perhaps not in the end. Another trend that interests me is the one for commentators to blame analysts, salesmen, or pension fund trustees for bad decisions in pension funds, but to forget the pension fund consultants. The dirty little secret of the pension world is that pension fund consultants are rather like auditors. These consultants drive pension fund decisions. There is almost no upside but substantial downside for a pension fund trustee to go against advice of the consultant. And that's a risk-return trade-off they're not paid to do, not paid to take. 
Besides commissioning the consultants, trustees do very little and are paid very little, and these two aspects reinforce each other. They are just a handful of major consultants, and they tend to have the same view about what pension funds should do. In the late 1990s, equity markets were rallying. They said, hold more equities. In the after uh, February of 2000, March of 2000, when the equity market bubble burst, they said, hold more bonds. The problem is that as long as trustees follow the consultants and the consultants follow each other, it will inevitably be the wrong advice for everyone except the first to act. Well done, Boots. Imagine pension funds all switched out of their equities into bonds on the words of the five major consultants. Because they're the single largest owner of the UK equity market, their selling will push down equities, their buying will push up bonds, they'll end up leaving an undervalued equity market and entering an overvalued bond market, unless you're the first to do it. Plausible, you say, but why has this not already happened? Pension fund trustees will follow the latest consultant fad and buy more bonds, but rather like St. Augustine's advice on celibacy, not yet. If pension funds were to make the trade today out of equities into bonds, they will lock in the pension fund shortfall, requiring a further injection of funds from uh, the sponsoring company, and they don't want to do that, clearly. So the pension funds are waiting and praying that the equity market will recover, closing the funding gap, and once that's happened, they will then accept the advice of the consultants and move into bonds, unless, of course, consultants have then changed their tune because the equity markets are now rallying. Of course, the reason why we have consultants in the first place is the hope that this external objective advice will avoid fad-like herd behavior not created. We need some more contra-cyclical thinking, more diversity from the consultant community. Interestingly, some of the ideas around how we create more independence of auditors may be worth a try with consultants. Rotation of consultants, a list of approved consultants monitored and held by the regulators may create incentives for the consultants to focus more on the specific liability of the pension funds they're working with, rather than the latest investment fad. Maybe. A third and final trend I want to look at is the nature of regulation itself. Financial regulation in the UK is in danger of becoming expensive, cumbersome, and not particularly successful. This is because, and I say this with the deepest of respect, partly because I married a lawyer, initially at least. In this case, she was a lawyer, I should say. <laughs> and this is because financial regulation is being driven today in the UK by law and not by economics. The legal approach to regulation focuses on the quality of treatment. It means that if you find a big international bank for some kind of behavior, 
you've got to do have the same fine, similar fine, for your local mutual building society if it does the same thing. Or your large foreign insurance company. The legal approach is blind to location, to market, to type of institution. It's a fine principle in its own right. Equality of treatment. It's another of those apple pie and ice cream examples. How can you argue against equality of treatment? The problem is it's wrong. The economic approach to regulation is to begin by asking not what have you precisely fined that company for, could you be sued by them for unfair treatment compared to others, but why are you regulating in the first place? What are you regulating and why? This question yields a very different type of regulation than the legal approach. For example, we should regulate banks because we're worried about the impact on the economy of a bank run. Banks are systemic. They lend to each other. And we saw with the Parmalat scandal, the deposit in one bank can be collateral for a loan from another bank. Bank regulation should therefore be focused on how good or bad systemic banks are at estimating their risks. Insurance companies are not systemic. Insurance companies don't lend to each other. When a big bank goes down, all the banks are nervous, they suffer. When a big insurance company goes down, the other ones prosper, we get more business. They are not systemic. The focus of insurance regulation should therefore be about consumer protection, not short-term risk assessment. The economic approach to regulation leads to different institutions being regulated differently depending on which risks they pose and to whom. With some systemic institutions being regulated intensely and, and others not. The legal approach is about ensuring equality and so brings a high watermark of regulation everywhere across all institutions, even where it may not be necessary. This will prove extremely expensive. One of the reasons why many financial companies set up outside the UK, we would like to think it's because they're avoiding tough, effective regulation, Maybe they're also avoiding costly regulation. This could be, in the long run, damaging the competitiveness of the City of London. Moreover, as I've argued before, if regulation forces diverse institutions to behave in the same way, for insurance companies and pension funds to act like banks with daily mark-to-market and VAR limits, then the lack of diversity will make the financial markets more volatile. There will be no one to buy when the short-term players want to sell because we've all become short-term players. Now, regulators are not mandated to worry about volatility directly. But as we said at the beginning, volatility brings a wider economic cost as it makes it more likely that there will be a misallocation of savings and investment. In other words, they should worry about let me conclude and then open it up to questions. In an attempt to reduce pension fund risks through better disclosure and more informed choices, good intentions, 
We've ended up increasing pension fund risks and transferring these risks from companies to employees, and perhaps ultimately back to the taxpayer. The key driver here is that individuals are liquidity constrained. They save when you don't let them touch the savings. By outsourcing advice on pension funds to a handful of consultants, pension funds are in danger of becoming more herd-like, harming themselves in the process. It's a reminder of a point we've made in a different context before, which is that many consultants measure risk as if it's static, independent to what is happening in the marketplace. But of course it's not. In a world of herding, risk is strategic. The observation of safety in the bond market will make it risky if we all rush into bonds in a response. The observation of risky in the equity, a risk in the equity market will ultimately make it safer if we all leave it in response. Finally, we appear to have adopted the legal approach to financial regulation, based not on why we're regulating an institution, but on making sure that we regulate all institutions in the same way. The result will be expensive regulation that could remove the market's natural stabilizers by forcing different institutions to behave in the same way. It could increase volatility and as a result distort the allocation of resources. Our regulators are, with good intent, preparing their regulation of long-term savings institutions today. This year will be an important year for the regulation of pension funds and insurance companies. It's not too late to change the course of this Titanic. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.